Hey, welcome to another podcast. Today I'm talking to Holly Barker, who is a really fantastic dog nutritionist, especially when it comes to like working and sports and active dogs. Um, she runs a Facebook group called Sport Dog Nutrition, where she gives out far too much information to be doing it for free, but that's that's Holly for you. Um, so I really recommend going and checking out her Facebook group as well and just checking out what Holly does, because I think that she's... Uh, got some really amazing information and hopefully she can share some of it with you today so let's get started hey holly welcome to the show hi thanks for having me it's a thing i do now podcasts (laughs) (laughs) it's great to have you as as a guest and you know uh, i've really enjoyed your facebook group especially and listening to you on other podcasts and I think you have some really interesting ideas about nutrition that can be really beneficial so looking forward to to having a conversation thanks the group's gone off it this week everyone's got all of the questions um it's been quite busy we've done uh, done a lot of answering questions uh, no particular themes but yeah it's definitely definitely been busy so um for people that don't know you very well uh where you know what uh can some maybe you can give a little bit of background what's the crack with me um the crack with me is uh so i've been a canine nutritionist now for i want to say about 10 years ish possibly less than that everything feels longer than than maybe what it is (laughs) um so yeah i started in canine nutrition immediately after um doing uh qualifying as a nurse um the the two the two things the nursing and the canine nutrition seemed to happen all at once um and and all of that began when um when I left the RAF in 2013 uh I was a medic prior to that so always been medical um all all of my careers my entire working life has been medical um and then I got into I kind of got into raw feeding um became a little bit uh, evangelistic with raw feeding but for a very short period of time um because i realized quite quickly that the world of canine nutrition is is vast um and interesting and so i decided that i wanted to be a nutritionist looked for courses um looked for education around canine nutrition none of it was hitting the spot none of it felt like it was um like it had a clinical basis when I feel like nutrition should have a clinical basis. Um, lots of the courses were extortionate amounts of money that didn't reflect the education you were getting from them. Just found it all really frustrating, really. So I just thought, you know what? I'm just going to do self-directed study. I'm going to base it um, around the same framework as how I'd done my nursing because it's clinical framework it's evidence-based practice. There's the biology side, then there's the research side, um, there's the uh, assessment and treatment side of things, everything that it teaches you, I thought I could definitely apply. Um, so that's what I did. I did another three years of study um, that was self-directed. And then for two years after that, I uh, basically just did casework um, for free. So I all of my friends that have farms and loads of farm dogs um I faffed on with them for a couple of years because that was a good way of doing it because you've got the same same breed of dog same environment but 
lots of them. So um, that was a good a good basis for uh, forming um, kind of my th- practice practicing. Um, practicing what I thought my theories would lead to basically a little bit of confirmation bias on that but um that's what I did so I practiced for free with them practiced for free with a few flyball people a few agility people did two years of that just really making sure that the theories and and the assumptions that I had come to worked in practice and worked I mean two years isn't long term but it's long enough to fine-tune your art um so that's what I did and then and then I started practicing and consulting from there fantastic yeah it's interesting isn't it because and maybe I'm wrong Holly but it doesn't seem to me like there's a huge amount of options for people that want to get into canine nutrition to actually go and study and actually maybe this is going to change I would imagine because uh, I remember when I was getting into dog training which wasn't really that long ago that I felt like there wasn't really a lot of options for me at that time. Um, And now there's a million different course providers. So I imagine that will probably happen to canine nutrition as well. Is that, is that kind of the current landscape? Is it, is it hard to? It's definitely getting there. There's now, um, I can't remember if it's Glasgow or Edinburgh. I think it might be Glasgow. Um, They do. So there are um, degrees in animal nutrition. It is not dog specific. Um, and the jobs that you get out of that, they can be with feed companies, but you know it, it's a it's a whole it's a whole industry encompassing all of the animals. You know, um, cow the commercial animals, so cows, sheep, pigs, chickens, um, that sort of thing. So the the dog side of that very very small kind of piece of of that whole educational puzzle. Um, but as far as I'm aware, I think. I think it's Glasgow University where they're kind of leading the way with that. If it's not Glasgow, then it's Edinburgh. Um, there's a couple of other courses. Um, one of them is out of Canada. It's accredited by their educational system, vastly expensive. Um, there's uh, the IPET network one in this country. Um it's a credit. It's educationally accredited. I can't remember which university it's tied to, but it's it's not one of those courses that results in um, in a degree or um, or a diploma or anything like that. It's I think it gives you I think it gives you like UCAS credits perhaps. Um, so yeah, it definitely it's going in the right direction. I would imagine that it's gonna it's gonna open up. It depends, doesn't it, on funding. Everything depends on funding. Either that or it's going to kind of go the way of dog training where you have some better respected overarching organisations that to be a member of kind of um, gives you uh, a little bit more weight behind you and a little bit more validity as a professional. But if it remains unregulated, then I would imagine it's probably going to go the same way as dog training, which... You vented yeah, your but, frustrations yeah. about recently. That was so brave, by the way. <laughs> the post that you did, really brave. No, it was because every. I mean, I don't. You know, I'm a nutritionist. I don't. I don't do behaviour as 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 my job or anything like that. I've rehabilitated failed sheepdogs now for a long time, um, and there was a a point. There was a point in that where I was going to go down the behaviour route. Um, 
but I was very <laughs> that thought process was so quickly nipped in the bud um by the people that I asked about it, it just really put me off um oh no so yeah well you know things for the best I think for the best um but I think I think the post that you did about how how you you know you're finding the, the industry that you're a part of quite frustrating um I thought that was really brave and I think a lot of people really resonated with that um and as I say whilst that's not that's not what I do I am subjected to it a lot I, I end up being a paraprofessional to behavior quite often um and I see a lot of it from an outsider's point of view um and with my mental health nurse hat on as someone that that really observes human behaviours and identifies when there are unhealthy patterns of behaviours, unhealthy environments um, and, and things that are causing poor mental health. I think the dog training industry, actually, in terms of that, has got a lot to answer for. You're all, you're all you know... Um, very much advocating for the the mental health of dogs whilst at the same time doing absolutely horrendous things to your own and each other's mental health um it concerns me and that's why i thought that your post was brave because what it's done is it's it's set in motion uh, a landscape where people can talk a little bit more freely about their frustrations and the fact that it's taken one person to do that to be brave enough speaks volumes for what it is that you're up against because if you were able to speak freely the tone of your post in regards to that would have been completely different it would have been you know less of a thing if you were just able to say well guys you know it's not our industry really difficult to maintain a, a, a healthy brain with um don't you find it difficult and everyone will be having the same conversation, but it's not. Yeah, I really appreciate that. It, uh, yeah, it was a real mixed bag, you know. So there's a lot of people that really agreed with it and a lot of people that hated it. And some people, you know, and then you have a, like a minority that are just really malicious as well. You know, and those are the people that I think are the biggest issue in the industry. You know, the people that are bullying other professionals and like you know, really going out of their way to be horrible to people on a level that is not even like, it's just really not healthy. Um, it's covert narcissism. Well, it definitely is that. I agree with that. <laughs> yeah, it definitely time. is. And it's yeah. it's something that, um, that's been allowed to um, flourish and be normalized in the industry from my point of view. Like I see red flags all the time and I just think, how is no one else picking up on this? How is no one else picking up that the that the people that function in a in a vacuum in a bell jar where it's all the same voices all the time reaffirming mm. all the same things, um, and then you get a, a really you know really big uh, red 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 flag for me um, in terms of narcissism is people who pick up a known fact with a little bit of controversy added to it and then reword it, re basically reinventing the wheel, represent it, re-represent it as, as, as their own idea and then just bask in the glory of being so controversial and new age thinking. And you just think, nothing is, it's new. 
it's not new. You haven't, you haven't invented, like, there's no, there's no such thing as original thoughts. Human beings have been on the planet too long alongside dogs to have any original thoughts about them. I mean, how long has it been since, you know, the, the modern age of psychology? There's, there's nothing, there's nothing new to be presented. And I think that, that not acknowledging that and thinking that you can get away with just presenting something as new that clearly isn't, that's a really big red flag. I think people should take more note of that critical yeah, thinking. <laughs> mm, mm, that's interesting. Yeah, one of my uh, favorite books is uh, it's called "Steal Like an Artist" by a guy called Austin Kleon, and it's exactly what you just said. It's this idea that there's no such thing as an original idea. Everything is based upon some. You know, you you everything is based upon what came before it. Exactly. That's um, a really good book. Really good book. Yeah. And I think that maybe, I don't know. I think that probably helps me be almost less bothered by that as well, though. Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it does. It does. Every now and then, and to be honest, I think it's probably just my hormones, but every now and then I just get a little bit in my bonus about things. Um, and I'll share an opinion and I'll get absolutely shot down or told that I'm wrong or whatever, usually on social media. And, and, and I shouldn't, and I know I shouldn't, but I do sometimes because I don't learn um, mainly. Um, <laughs> and... And I'll I'll post something, it'll cause a discussion, and then I'll think, oh, I've made a mistake. I don't want to have this discussion anymore. I wish I'd never brought it up. Now, in real life, when that happens, because I do come out with stuff, I mean, we all do, don't I? I'm very much a person that has a thought, it comes straight out my mouth, and I do not assess it. I don't think about, like, I literally just, it's a... It's it's a one-way street. Um, and I'll, I'll come out with something, and someone will look at me like, did you think that through? I'm like, no, I didn't. And now that you've pointed it out that I clearly didn't think it through, when I have thought about it, I realise that what I've done is I've misspoken. I've said mm. something incorrect. I've done. You can't do that on social media because it's there forever. Um, yes. And or you 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 kind of post something as as a, a as a thinking out loud, just musing, and that and that cannot be um, moderated as to how it appears to someone else you can really offend someone with no idea that you've done it and they might respond to you letting you know of your offense and then you think oh yeah didn't think it could be taken that way oh you know then you start analyzing um and then you think right i've messed up i'm gonna i'm gonna delete that just you know really sorry uh, i have misspoken um and and go from there but what you can't take back is the opinions that are formed around that one comment I find it really hard to um, function in a world where people are so unforgiving of mistakes and people are, are so, um, you know, the, the, the inflexible as to what it means to be human. You can make mistakes. You can misspeak. You can have a bad day. You can vent. You can... Uh, express yourself in all of the negative ways just as you can in all of the positive ways and sometimes it doesn't mean anything and judging someone on those experiences and having a picture of them as that person based on that one moment in time for the rest of their lives is something that I've found in dog world really sticks even in what I do so um with my brief period of being a very evangelical raw feeder and you know carbs are bad and all of this da, 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 um, and just with learning, you know, I have to let people know that I've updated my knowledge, my knowledge um, 
I can't even remember what it was. I posted something and someone said, well, you didn't say that five years ago. I'm like, yeah, no, no shit. I didn't say it five years ago. <laughs> learned, more, learned more since then. Yeah. Thanks everyone. This is a knowledge that. update. <laughs> yes, that's exactly actually. I literally put, I've recorded an introduction for the Steve White podcast recently that's coming out really soon as I'm we're recording this. Obviously, the timeline's all messed up when you're listening to this. Yeah. And I said exactly that. You have to appreciate that this podcast has been running for a long time now. And there are going to be things that you listen to in old episodes that I don't agree with anymore or, you know, my view has changed. But I do agree with you uh, about the social media thing. I think, well, firstly, my personality sometimes... Uh, causes me issues on social media because yeah, i have the same problem as you Holly, where i'll just i'll i'll get myself like worked up about something and then i'll just write a big rant about it and i won't really word it perfectly and then the problem with social media is oftentimes people want to see the worst in a post they, they, they want to look yeah. they want to like pick apart the word wording um, and view it in the worst possible way. Yeah. Um, and it's very difficult to discern between people that are genuinely upset by what you've posted and people that are just acting upset to kind of get a reaction. So for example, on that post that you mentioned, there was someone that was like commenting about, oh, this post has really upset me, you know, and blah, 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 blah. Big kind of like a pity fest. You click on their profile, they're making memes about the situation. And it's like, no, no, this is this is upset this is not upset. Upset people don't make memes. <laughs> upset people do not make memes. But that's actually making that's a actually... meme is not an emotional response. Like, hang on, let me just let me just go let me just go and find my uh, my yeah. mental health nursing notes from when I was at uni. Hang on, where where does where does meme creating fall in the emotional response? It doesn't. Yeah, oh, exactly. The ego. So. Anyway, you actually do a really good job in your group of moderating it and making sure that it's quite a welcoming place. I never see any of that. Um, oh, so. there's been two, two this year, Nick. Well, that's not very many for a Facebook group. I know, but I would like it to be none. I would like it to be none. <laughs> <laughs> it's been it's been none for so long. I think in the in, I think in the whole the whole of it, I can't remember how long it's been going on now. And I think there's I think there's eight point two thousand people on there now, something like that. Um, and I remember every single person where there has been a conflict and I've had to block them. And I think about it all of the time because I have huge imposter syndrome, huge. Um, and one of the things that happens on the group that, that I appreciate wholeheartedly, I really I do appreciate it, but I can't cope with it. Um, is when people say, oh, you're nice, you're kind, you give your time. And I'm like, yeah, well, that's my choice and that's what I do. And no one has to draw any attention to it. And we don't have to, let's not put the focus on me. Let's just talk about dog food. And, and I find it quite stressful. And all I think of is when people are saying nice things is that when that's happening, I know that there's going to be people sat there going, well, she wasn't nice to me. She might be nice to everyone else, but she wasn't nice to me or she wasn't helpful to me or... And and I think about that a lot. I put a lot of effort into into kind of being as kind as possible. But like you say, I am. Um, I go through periods of being completely overwhelmed. As I say, I nurse as well. There are times when I might be replying to someone on the group where 
I am sitting outside of my work or I've shut myself in the office for five minutes because someone's died or because I am trying to get someone that's really poorly sectioned and there's not a single professional that's been listening to me and it's been a week and this person is really unwell and I'm frightened for them. You know, there's there's so much that goes on in people's lives that is absolutely separate to what you see online. And I think if anyone ever thinks that I've been short with them, I know that that's one of the main things that I do when I'm stressed is, is I'm short. I get really, really task focused. So someone might post about their dog that's got digestive problems or whatever, and I want to help them. And I know that I've got exactly two minutes of time and I'm using the group to distract myself from whatever current distress I'm in. So it's a bit of a dissociation through um, having a, a different task. Um so because I become task focused, I might just forget. Usually I'll I'll say, oh, I'm so sorry that your dog's poorly or that sounds really tough because it is really tough having a poorly dog. And sometimes I forget to say that and I'll just be really task focused. And I'll go, boom, give this supplement, change to this food, cut out chicken and salmon, stop feeding oil. Don't feed that. Start feeding this. And it's the bash, bash, bash. And I just think that that can come across as really um insensitive and like I'm seeing your dog as a, as a task to be done and I think that there's there's a flip they'll probably see when someone's posted the exact same thing and gotten a completely different response from me and felt really cared for and nurtured and then other people don't get that nurturing and care that's something that I'm really conscious of as well so if anyone's listening and that's happened to you I'm really sorry it's not anything to do with you it's everything to do with me <laughs> it's just not always possible to explain why that's that's happening but these are the pressures of social media aren't they because everything well you have you proof. have a really unusual situation though holly because you know you have this ginormous facebook group that you essentially give a lot of free information on you mm. know which people would ordinarily be paying for yeah. um so what I think I already know the answer why to this. Why that? <laughs> why no, no, no? Why uh? Why not do this full time? Because I think you you easily could. There's clearly the demand to do that. So why have you made that decision? Um, fear, fear. Um, I I don't make it full time in case it doesn't work. Um, I am awful at being my own boss. Uh, awful at it. Um. Part of that is 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 the ADHD thing. So um, I can't do anything unless there is a deadline and consequences. And I can't impose consequences on myself because I'll just waylay them. I can sometimes set myself deadlines where I convince myself that the consequence is that I will either look unprofessional or that it wouldn't be fair on whoever I'm providing the service to. Sometimes I can get around that. So when I was doing consultations, um, I'd do the consultation and then I'd have to write up all the notes and then I'd have to send them. The, so the consultation bit, fine. The writing up the notes bit and sending them, oh, absolute ball ache. I know it needs doing, but I just can't make myself do it. And this is, this is not like a, whoa, pity me, all the rest of it. It is something that I've struggled with forever. Um, I can... If if I was able to, if I was able to better manage the way that my brain works, and maybe I will get there one day, then you know I could I could I could make a success of it and do it full time. Um, I get asked the question all the time. I have friends that are really concerned, like, why are you doing all of this for free? Why? You, there's literally no need. Just set up a 
paid for subscription group. And I'm like, yeah, I could do that. I could set up a paid for subscription group, but then I'd have to move all of the content from one place to the other. Um, and I'd have to, I'd have to make myself do that. And I don't know how, um, I struggle with, um, people pleasing. And I feel like if I charged money for something that I enjoy doing, that, that that's kind of wrong. I know it's not logically. I know it's not. I just, there's a lot of things about it for my own psychology, for my own, the way that my brain works. Um, there are, there are a lot of barriers as to why I don't do it full time and why I haven't made it a six fees, six figure business that it could be. Um, part of that is a, a lack of skills on my part as well. Um, it is getting there. I am sort of triaging in my head a way of getting there. And I think how I'm going to get there is going to be a subscription group where basically I just do what I'm doing, except people pay a monthly fee for that. And it's still going to be cheaper than a vet. It's still going to be cheaper than insurance. It's still going to be cheaper than having a costa once a week. Um, I just need to figure do you know, out. Have you ever, do you know, um, do you know Dom Hodgson, the pet business coach? I don't coach? know the name. No. Pep, I feel like you get on really well. He's very, uh, he's very no bullshit. I can introduce I you to him, but I think, I think, yeah, I just feel like you would get on because he's, uh, He's a bit of a Marmite person. A lot of people don't like him because he doesn't uh, like he he doesn't. Oh, how can I put this? He's just no bullshit, you know. Yeah, but I, no, I just I feel need, like I need that. I feel like you're kind of that the person that would respond well to that, though. I would. Abs- I absolutely respond well to no bullshit. <laughs> um, I need. I need to I need, let's, I need, let's move on though, because I yeah. really, w- <laughs> I really want to talk about nutrition. <laughs> Yeah, we've been chatting for ages not talking about nutrition. Sorry. Come on, Nick. No worries. No worries. Let's do it. Okay. Um, you mentioned about being, you know, any evangelical about rule when you were earlier in your kind of journey. Yeah. What is like let's let's like start from the baseline, right? You know, you just have a, a dog that doesn't have any particular issues. Mm-hmm. But you ha- maybe you you specialize more in like working dogs, right, Holly? So we're, maybe we're talking about a dog more more of an active dog, is that right? Yeah. So um, I, I do a lot with the agility community, um, working dogs, flyball dogs, so canine athletes, I suppose you could call them. But at the same time, loads of pets on the group, loads of retired agility dogs and, and flyball dogs and sport dogs, and a few gun dog people, a few sheep dog people. So literally everything. Is there something like? Is there like a like a foundations or like a starting place that is good for anyone, you know, to, um, I don't know how to word this, like, you know, like, what's the absolute base of basics? Knowledge. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, more, what, sh- what should I, what should most people be feeding their dog, I guess? <laughs> oh, well, my, my, my absolute massive cop-out answer to that is whatever the dog does, does best on. So let's say... The world, the world says um, that not the world, but there's a, there's a definite divide in that a lot of uh, professionals, um, um, vets especially, will say that a dog needs a, a commercial diet because there are European standards. If we're in the UK or, or you know global standards, um, 
called the NRC. Uh, that's the National Research Council. So loads of clever people got their heads together and figured out exactly the right amounts of everything that a dog needs per day. Just a basic pet dog in order to meet their biological needs. So it's protein, it's carbohydrates, it's fats. They're the macronutrients. Um, and then you've got the micronutrients, so the vitamins, the minerals and all the rest of it. So if you feed a commercial food on paper, um, it has to meet all those requirements. If you feed a raw food, it doesn't. What about a and commercial raw diet, though? A commercial raw, it depends you know, how like... they worded it. Ah, uh, okay. Right. So if they say 80-10-10 is complete, that's only complete as a raw feeding model. It is not complete as a global standard model. So whether that's NRC, which is the National Research Council, or whether that is FEDIAF, which is the, the European version of that, it's not. So I've got... Um, I've got uh, software spreadsheets on my computer and I can put in an 80-10-10 and I can see that unless it's a beef 80-10-10 and no one's feeding beef every day, um, it's not meeting the requirement. I mean, even a beef 80-10-10 isn't meeting everything. You know, that can be short on manganese. So you put all this in and it shows you into, into the spreadsheet uh, a raw 80-10-10. Uh, even the ones that have some veg chucked in, you put it all into a spreadsheet and it'll show you where all the deficiencies are, uh, where the vitamin needs are met. Um, so from that basis of you need to feed your dog a complete diet, what completeness means is two different things. So in a dry complete, it means it'll meet a, a, a research standard. And in a raw complete, it might not. So in the UK, the bit that you're looking for is FEDIAF. FEDIAF complete. So the raw manufacturers who do this um, are, I think Naked Dog does a FEDIAF complete. Pro Dog Raw does a FEDIAF complete. Poppy's Picnic does a FEDIAF complete. And there's someone else as well that I've immediately forgotten. It's a search term that people can look up. I mean, there's, there's three or four there. So, uh, that's 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 one of the things. So when people ask what to feed your dog, firstly, it's up to you. It's your choice. Whatever suits you best is is a consideration as to what suits your dog best. Some people hold themselves to a standard of dog feeding that's really difficult for them, causes them a massive amount of stress financially, for freezer space, for time, for general anxiety of if they're getting it right. I speak to a lot of people who come to me in such a freaking anxious mess because they're scared they're not getting it right. They're scared there's a deficiency. There's a, there's a lot of fear and anxiety there. And let me tell you now, there's nothing more unhealthy than your dog, than your dog having to live with someone who is a stress head. It's not nice living with a stress head. It's not. It has a huge impact on everyone's lives. So if it's causing you stress and anxiety, then maybe it's not the thing for you and your dog. So there's that to consider. Um, I, I think that all of this, this pressure around feeding um, is something that I spend a lot of time doing. People literally just want me to give them that answer. They just want to be told what to feed their dog. Yeah, definitely. An, un, yeah. an unbiased opinion. So I do not judge or berate anyone if they want to feed kibble. 
kibble's been demonized big time. Um, and I used to, uh, once upon a time, also be judgy about kibble and feeding kibble like, why would you? It's biologically clean, appropriate. And um, but and, the, and then there's all the, you know, the, the bullshit, uh, the, the opinions about the, um, the health problems that kibble cause. OK, so as we just mentioned, uh, I work predominantly with uh, with with sporting dogs, working dogs. Um, my family are farmers. Um, I have grown up in the countryside among farms and uh, shooting estates, so gun dogs, so all of that. So my experience of working dogs is that they're all either fed on CSJ or Skinners or Autarky. They're low budget uh, kibbles. The ingredients on them aren't great. The meat content is minimal and not high quality. And these dogs live forever. They, they just they just do. They don't particularly appear. I mean, obviously, there's, there's I'm, I'm generalizing hugely, but the dogs that I know were fed on the kibble, the types of kibble that are most demonized don't appear to be doing that badly. The farm dogs that work absolutely fine until they're 14, then retire, live three or four more years, um, absolutely fine, don't ail throughout the lives, aren't itching, aren't having you know, digestive problems, all the rest of it. And this is Labradors, Spaniels, Border Collies, um, Bearded Collies. It's interesting, it's you, know, interesting got- you say this, Holly, because a, a lot of the statistics are saying that dogs lifespans are going down when you look at um a lot of the pedigree dog statistics anyway yeah um and i think some people attribute that to nutrition yeah i don't what's your thoughts on that i think they are stressed fat overfed under exercised and um not appreciated for their species they are put on emotionally um just unbelievably all the dogs that i know and this is hundreds i mean obviously it's not a study it's not an evidence it's nothing it is just my opinion but it's my opinion on experiencing huge numbers of working dogs versus pet dogs um i mean one example is where i go to train my sheep dogs there's maybe 20 20 odd dogs in that kennels as a standard all of the time um and those dogs are healthy. They they work hard. They look fine. You know, they're not they're not neurotic. They're just they're just decent dogs doing a job, um, and they live a life that is separate from humans because they live in kennels. They spend huge amounts of time out of doors, and when they're out of doors, they're doing something that makes them happy. They're having a relationship with a human that is but i mean i'm not i'm not sugarcoating it some dogs that are working dogs have absolutely terrible lives they do but so do some pets you know abuse is out there and you know if we go down that rabbit hole we'll never get back onto nutrition so stress is is the big is the biggest thing i think um and the expectations that are put on dogs um overfed yeah that's uh, clearly a massive issue i think a lot of people massive. don't even so many just pet owners don't even really know what a healthy weight looks like but i was laughing a little bit when you were speaking because i feel like my nan is, would love this podcast because she would be like <laughs> i've fed my dog chappy for 40 years and it's not caused any problem 
Yeah. <laughs> do you want to do you want to show me the, 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 my my biggest my biggest um, annoyance of this year was uh, was I rescued dog number six and she came to me and I was told that she was fed on bakers and my ego my ego instantly exploded in my head like we could do some amazing before and afters of the difference between being fed on bakers and then being fed on a, a decent homemade balanced diet all the supplements and I was already planning it all like the ego was driving on on this thought process entirely and I went to pick her up and she's stunning shiny white teeth perfect weights and I was just like right well there was an instant lessening uh, not being not being judgmental, wasn't it? The, 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 the food that I have touted for years as being the worst food in the world, and she literally looked fantastic. And her behaviour was really good as well. Like the other thing I say about bakers is, oh, it makes them hyper, full of sugar, bloody awful. And she's literally, literally just perfect on it. Um, so yeah, I I have to say you, your nan's right. <laughs> I want to make sure we we move on from uh, this subject in terms of we don't just cut it off as yeah, free bakers. Is... Yeah, but don't feel I... guilty. That's what you're saying, right? Don't yeah. don't feel guilty don't feel about guilty. What you... the the this drive of <laughs> this drive of nutrition being the be all and end all of everything, and it's not. It's a piece of the pie. You know, we're talking about. Um, Canine cancers being, you know, off of the charts. Um, and this is what I talk about with overfeeding and separating that from obesity because it's not always the same thing. You can have a dog that's overfed that isn't obese. Um, and your working breeds are a really good example of that. Some of them that are quite skinny, it doesn't matter how much food you put in them, they'll just find ways to use it. You know, if you if if you have a dog that requires a thousand calories a day, um, but you've been giving them 1200 they'll just find ways to burn off that extra 200 they'll just wiggle they'll just pace this is actually this is a common problem isn't it with working line dogs yeah uh, working cocker spaniels are great at it the more you feed them the more they wiggle they just wiggle it all off so how do you what's your approach to that firstly i find out their protein tolerance um working line dogs as i mentioned historically have done well on kind of cheap not that great quality foods if they've come from working line kennels and then back and back through their ancestry you know even before commercial foods were available they weren't on high protein diets so what you would have was this this um, belief that the working dogs that you would breed from would have to be what we call proven so and i'm talking hundreds of years ago Proven dogs. That dog's really good at what it does, therefore we'll breed from it. And at an age where it's proven itself not to not to ail of anything. Um, not always, but this was kind of a, a baseline theory of breeding. So you'll breed from these dogs. Now, at this time, these dogs would have had to, in order to have good reproductive health, they would have to have been able to thrive on whatever it was that they were fed on. And now sometimes um, it would just be that... that the people that owned them fed them quite well. The other thing about them is that they might have been quite good at supplementing their own diet too, um, eating insects, catching small birds, uh, grazing on the right kind of uh, sort of pasture and hedgerow kind of forage, you know, grasses and berries and herbs and things like that. You know, all these years ago, dogs 
were allowed to free range a lot more than what they are now. So dogs that were proven and healthy stands to reason that they might have been better at supplementing their own diets too. So is, is that a good measure though? Because like, for example, the dogs in puppy farms breed, right? You know, yeah. and I can't imagine they're very healthy dogs. Um, but they will be fed a commercial diet that's ticked all of the boxes. So when you think about things that are good for reproductive health, like um, folate and, um, and the vitamins, the zinc and stuff like that, way back before commercial diets, that won't have been a consideration. And okay. as we know now from formulating diets, it's hard to meet all of those, tick all of those boxes just with um, just with meat. Um, here's a really interesting thing. So growing up, my dad had gun dogs um, and they were fed a mix of all sorts of things. But one of the things that they consistently got were <laughs> tripe, tripe eggs and oats. So I put the tripe eggs and oats into my spreadsheet oh and sardines put them into my spreadsheet and it's pretty much complete don't have to do anything to that oats tripe egg with the shell and sometimes sardines a little bit of olive oil or any olive oil uh, sorry or any oil really that's got a vitamin e and literally balanced so easy easiest recipe um and these two things especially the oats and the tripe great ingredients great base foods to give dogs um so that will have been meeting those needs as well um so where did what was i talking about oh i was talking about so ancestrally historically not particularly high protein diets that's the point i'm getting to and then you fast forward to today and the diets that they're on are really quite high protein so what you've got is a dog that has been bred to do well on what it's fed on and doing well means that they are good at converting the food that's given to them into energy. Um, how that works with protein is there's a biological process called gluconeogenesis. And what that is, is it's turning protein into glucose. So when we're talking about good quality diets, and the meat content and the protein content and them not being too carby um, because some diets that are too carby can make dogs a little bit wired. All you're seeing with the hyperactivity in relation to the diet that's fed is them converting it into glucose and what having that circulating glucose does to their behavior. So, it doesn't matter if it's from carbs or from protein. With dogs like that, they are going to turn it into glucose. And it's a little bit like giving um, a kid loads of sweeties. When you've got that rapidly available energy in the form of glucose circulating, it stands to reason that a dog that has been bred to work is going to have some sort of awareness of when they have a high level of circulating energy and they're going to want to do something with it because that's what we've bred them to do. Um, so that's where I think with the working line dogs, being quite hyperactive on the diets that we give them comes from. Um, and I've worked with a gun dog kennel recently where he'd heard me talk about this and was just like, right, I've got a kennel full of gun dogs. Uh, they're spaniels. I want to lower the protein. How do I do it? So I formulated a diet for them. And that's what we're working you know, just a, a lower level of, of protein and a higher level of fat. 
I've seen you say before you add you like oats, right? You're a big advocate yeah. for oats in this situation, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, oats just because it's easy, to be honest. I mean, I quite like sweet potato as well, quite like pearl barley. Um, as I say, I'm no the, longer... The only, the only thing is, Holly, you know, when you talk about uh, calming, working dogs down, I think a lot of people that are in the working community that is a very scary prospect because you don't want to, you know, you want the dog to be high drive and yeah. have a lot of energy. The yeah. idea of your dog being lethargic is like, is, is terrible. Yeah. So, uh, where, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So what, what we're talking about there is stead, steady energy. We want the drive. We want, we want everything, we want everything right. Don't we? Um, what we don't want is them being, uh, so upper height that they're, um, vocalizing you know at trials they, they they can't be yucking their heads off um you know it's frowned upon isn't it you don't you don't win if they're if they're vocalizing um and it's it's an endurance sport and it's a sport that is very much brain and body working together and what nutritionally we know about um endurance so doing something for an entire day is that yes? You need your little bit. You need your, your, your little bit of uh, glucose to begin with because that's what muscles like best. However, stored glucose in the form of glycogen that comes that stays in the muscles, and when that's been used by the muscles, it gets replenished from the liver. So that's circulating glucose, not as essential really when you want them to work all day. When you want endurance, then you look at fats. And the other thing about burning fats is when you burn fats, you the liver creates ketone bodies and they cross the blood-brain barrier and the brain uses them for energy. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. We can't have a lethargic dog, but what we want a dog to do is to be fueled efficiently and to not run out of energy so that everything is working like, uh, a, like a primed engine. There's no... There's no... Uh, there's no dips where they're running out of fuel and hitting a wall. Everything is just ticking along so they've got a constant stream of the right kind of fuels and this is what i do this is this is like my bag this is what i specialize in so i feed dogs so that that is what you get you get a constant stream of fuel so i feed um for dogs that work for busy days they have a completely different way of feeding than on a standard day so mostly the working dogs that i work with they're fed once a day breakfast only comes into play when you want to fuel them for whatever doing they're doing that day and you uh finally tune the breakfast to exactly what it is they're doing so you work out the calories for the exercise and then you temper the release of those calories using fiber so it's literally like it's like creating music where you've got the bass and the treble and and you you do like an equalizer to balance it all out that's that's what I do. So you say on a busy day, you just feed once a day. Is that what you said? So uh, uh, day to day, I feed once a day. I mean, not okay. every dog or every person um, will go <clears> for that. Um, so that's not set in stone, but then we just tweak that anyways. But let's, for the sake of argument, say that you've got a working dog fed once a day. Um, and let's say that that dog is a gun dog. So day to day, you're just training, you're doing bits and bobs and it's not very busy. And then it comes to the season, comes to the shooting season, and you need to fuel them for a day picking up or whatever it is that they're doing. So on that day, that busy day, that breakfast is to fuel their activity 
until tea time, until their next meal. So that's that's what that breakfast is doing. It's nothing to do with um it's nothing to do with general feeding. It is purely fuel. So you can forget the vitamins, forget the minerals, forget all of that. You're literally just adjusting mainly the fats, the pro and the protein, sometimes a little bit of carbs, but I tend to get them from um sometimes oats, sometimes sugars. But what you're doing is you're tempering the release of those calories so that it lasts all day so i do something you... called a breakfast bar okay sorry go ahead i'm no no you, that sounded important go <laughs> finish your full <laughs> so we do this breakfast bar and it's 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 really high fat moderate protein the proteins that are in there are easy to uptake um and then the the way that the fats are released are moderated by the fiber so it's got ground almonds in there it's got sardines in there um eggs a little bit of oats it's got some fruit so in this complete little square that looks like a flapjack or like a fishy breakfast bar each stage of energy requirement is met so when you when you first get there the 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 sugars and the starches that are in there they get digested first so they give your dog the the energy for their muscles to go and do what they're doing so they you know they'll go pick up they'll do whatever they're doing working really hard maybe for you know 20 minutes half an hour or whatever and then they'll come back to you know wait for wait for the next job so that's fueled that particular bit of work and then as the the food continues to be digested there'll be another wave of energy then from the proteins being turned into sugars all this time there's slow release fats going on so there's circulating lipids they um also are in the form of medium chain triglycerides which is the type of fat that again crosses the blood brain barrier so you're, you're keeping their brain fueled too um and this is what it does and then if it's a really really busy dog or a dog that burns through calories quickly what we'll then do is we'll add a lunch so i get to know these dogs to find out what they do and how they work and how they respond to food um and if it if it's such that, you know, the dog starts flagging halfway through the day, no problem. We'll give them a protein boost in the middle of the day. Things that are easy to carry, tin of sardines, an egg. If you get the sardines in tomato sauce, there's a little bit of sugar in there to give them a boost, give them that, gives them more energy, and then we carry on. When you feed less, like once a day, do you mm -hmm. worry about bloat? Because obviously mm. that's a, a, something that a lot of people are freaked out about. Yeah, it is. And it's it's a question that I get when I when I talk about once a day feeding. I think that bloat is is definitely a, a breed specific thing. Um and I also think that it depends on the dog. I do not take once a day feeding lightly at all, um, because of the risk of bloat. Um what we do is for those people who want to try that with their dogs, is we transfer over really slowly. So and sometimes we, you know, we don't get to that point. We get to the point where their daily ration is maybe three quarters of a night and a quarter in the morning. Um, that definitely goes on a dog by dog basis. Um, the reason for that is because um, dogs are, as we just spoke about, dogs are designed to, um, the working dogs in particular, are designed to do what they do through that kind of internal fuel is through through stored energy basically so the energy is stored in the muscles and the liver in the form of glycogen and then under the skin in in brown fat 
which is your adipose tissue. So that's really that's really enough. Um, there's not many dogs that will absolutely run out of usable energy. Um, no, it's not. I don't worry about that. It's just, um, um, you know, you hear a lot of horror stories about bloat. And also, yeah. um, but I've actually been very curious about this for a while because I started reading Rodney Habib's book, Forever Dog. And he yeah. uh, is a real, he talks a lot about um, fasting and how yeah. a lot of the dogs that live the longest uh, were fed less meals or had large fa- fasting periods. But he doesn't, in the book, maybe I just didn't get to this portion of the book, but I, I don't remember him ever really saying how to actually action that. So it's it's, it's interesting yeah. that you mentioned the once a day stuff. Yeah, and this is what I've been, I mean, quite a, a long time before the book happened. And when I used to do seminars, this is what I spoke about. I spoke about the once a day feeding, how intermittent fasting works, how having the, the 16 hour period as a minimum um, to elicit the, the cellular response called... Um, autophagy um that's spoken about in that book so everything that i've just said basically what you're talking about is how um how cells respond to food and how they repair um and they can't repair in the presence of protein so that's where you have to have the fasting period and that usually kicks in this cellular repair this autophagy that usually kicks in at about um 12 hours fasted and then for every four hours more on top of that 12 hours, you get more cellular repair. So doing that with dogs, it doesn't mean that you have to feed once a day. What you can do is you can um, put that in place using uh, what you can, you can call it a feeding window. So, I mean, intermittent fasting in humans, they call it 16-8. You can do it with dogs. So what that would look like would be maybe... um, feeding at 10 at night and six in the morning that's eight hours isn't it yeah um so yeah so that might look like feeding at 10 at night and six in the morning or it might look like feeding at you know different eight hour period so then you're still feeding twice a day if you're worried about bloat you've ticked that box that's fine um but yeah that in terms of worrying about bloat also it depends what you feed as well um bloat is more likely I should probably back this up with a study, but I'm trying to remember if I've read one. I'm thinking about kibble. So if you feed dry kibble, once it's in the gut, it swells sort of immeasurably, doesn't it? It swells a lot. Um, And I think that can be a little bit more of a a risk with with bloat as well. I've seen dogs that have had that where they've gotten into a bag of food and just gorged themselves. And then because it's dry, once it's in the gut, it swells and then you get the torsion. Um, So... I think that the the fast side of things probably works um, a little bit better with fresh feeding. But I always say that if you're going to feed kibble, that you should soak it anyway. And I don't mean soaking it all day at room temperature because then you're just going to risk bacteria. But I usually chuck warm water on a kibble 15 minutes before feeding. Um, so if you're doing that, you're already doubling the volume. So if you've, if you've got, let's say, uh, uh, the Great Dane, they're prone to bloat. Um, deep-chested dogs. If you feed them kibble and you feed it twice a day and you're worried about once a day feeding, so the volume is however much. But then if you add water to that and feed it to your dog, if you've had double the amount of water, then you double the volume of food. And if your dog is all right with that, then there's nothing to say that it shouldn't be all right with 
altering the feeding. But the the thing that you have to do, um, it doesn't matter what you're doing in terms of feeding your dog. If you're making a change, you need to do it slowly so that you can watch for tolerance, so that you can see how they respond, so that you can find out if what you're doing is doing them any good because every dog's different. Um, so that that is my advice. The way that I do it is I move uh, a quarter from morning to night. That's the other thing. I personally find that if you're going to feed once a day is to do it at night because it means that the food that they're getting is for repair and restoration. It's fed at rest, which reduces the risk of bloat again because your dog eats its tea, goes to bed, has a good sleep. It's not running about. It's rest. So rest, repair, recuperation. Um, and then that energy from that food gets stored. And that happens all while they're asleep and resting. So it means that when they do get the, the energy release from the food in terms of glycogen, they're not awake. They're not in, a, in an environmental position to want to do something with that food. Therefore, it has to be stored. So there's the behavioral side as well. Some of the working dogs you know, a really commonly reported issue is them being sick when they actually haven't really got anything in their stomach. And, you know, a lot of people mm -hmm. will give their dogs like nighttime biscuits and all this kind of stuff trying to avoid that problem. Yeah. Is that something, is that, a, is, would that be an example of a dog that maybe just wouldn't work very well being fed once a day? Well, probably going to come in for some shit on this one. Um, it's not sick. It's not sick. It's bile. It's it's the digestive products. It's not vomit. So that kind of works a little bit um, on the dog's timescale. So we all know about Pavlov, yeah? We all know about ringing the bell and the dog drools because the dog's <laughs> expecting food. This is a biological, it's a physical response. So your dog's been fed for the first five years of its life, twice a day, at uh, eight in the morning and eight at night. So it gets to half past seven and your dog's like, it's happening, come in, it's time. Everything starts getting prepared. Um, but you've fallen down the stairs, broken your neck and your dog doesn't get fed. Therefore, all of this stuff is happening in the dog's stomach, ready to do all the digestion, but you're dead, so you can't feed the dog. Therefore, it doesn't get used and the dog sticks it up because it's unused. They don't have this same... Uh, belief system around how the digestive system work that we does that sorry that we do they literally have right we're ready to digest oh it's not happening oh we don't need this digestive stuff we'll just stick it up um and then it's gone then it's not causing a problem um it's it's a process that, that it's it's a physical thing that they've engaged in um and we view it as something terrible and bad that should be stopped um, I have engaged in this process with people. I've invented the bedtime biscuit. People love it because it stops the hunger pukes. Um, but I've had this with my own dogs, um, particularly when I've uh, when I've got them from pups and they go from being fed four times a day to three times a day to two times a day and then I transfer to once. Um, going from three times a day to twice a day, there's been a bit of hunger pukes there. Maybe everyone thinks that I'm cruel and awful, but I, don't, I just don't address it. Like, that will stop. They will adjust. If it continues, I'll address it. But having hunger pukes for, I mean, how long does it even go on for when I'm transitioning them? I think probably three days we might have the odd puke. And then 
you know, this is this is pups, so that's when they're going from three meals to two and then two to one. It's just a readjustment period. And I know that it's bile because it's yellow, because it's, you know, it, it, yellow or clear. It sometimes looks a bit frothy. I know what bile looks like, and that's what it is. It's not vomiting. It's not indicative of, um, you know, a, a disease process or anything terribly going wrong. Um it's just a dog rebalancing its physical state. So I don't get concerned about it. I don't get worried about it. If it was prolonged, if it kept happening and the dog wasn't adjusting, then right, it's not for that dog. That that dog does need feeding more often or it does need a snack. Um, but I, I give the dog time to rebalance. Super. What do you feed your dogs, Holly? Oh, everything. <laughs> Um, what have I got in the house? Uh, I've got a bag of kibble for when I forget to defrost things or when I forget to buy things. Um, I am unorganised, maximum unorganised. Um, also, Brian Brian feeds the dogs when I'm at work. Um, so if I've done sort of four days off the trot um, and then it gets to the fourth day and he's like, you know, we've got no food at all, don't you? No raw food. I'm like, good, takes like they only deliver once a week so we're going to be waiting now because i've missed the deadline um so when that happens um i've got tin stuff uh i've got kibble stuff i cook for them um there's a there's a venison man that lives up the road he usually texts me at like six in the morning after he's killed a deer um and then i have to be like the, there's a race on because he'll text loads of people and yet it's first come first serve so i have to get the good deer so if i get that from him i'll cook that i'll make a balanced recipe with it um literally i'll feed my dogs anything um my day-to-day my go-to is raw and home cooked the commercial foods are a backup for when i'm just being a bit crap and disorganized um mostly, you mean like when you well hang on you mean do you you actually make your own rule or you just buy one of the, yeah. the big brands? Yeah, no, no, no. I, I make my own. Um, I mean, I have bought big brands, but at the minute what I'm doing is uh, I'm doing the a lot of the oats, eggs and sardines. Um, it's just a balanced recipe. So it can get a bit samey, but I change it up with you know, a couple of times a week or whatever, I'll, I'll use a different meat or I'll cook something that's, that's balanced. It's really, and when I'm talking- it's really interesting that you feed a variety of things because that really worries a lot of people. You know, a lot of people feel like, oh, if I introduce something new to my dog, it's going to make them ill. You know, you know, for example, when people change foods, oftentimes they're doing Ooh. these big, big uh, changeover periods. Um, but but so it's quite interesting that you you actually do shift and change quite a lot. Yeah, all the time. Uh, d- d- quite quite often something different every day. The I've only got one dog that doesn't always agree with that, um, and that's come back to bite me on the arse this week because um, and, and that's Wallace. And I think his sensitivity comes from the fact that he's um, he's he's a traumatized dog. Uh, I've been rehabbing Wallace for like nearly four years now, and while he is far and away better than he was and he can exist much more comfortably in the world than he did he does still get upset by things and that makes his digestion more sensitive i'll talk a little bit about why that is in a sec um so i chucked together a load of venison this week um and they have been on my balanced recipe which is the tripe the eggs the oats sardines um or a bone 
And that's a Fed Diaf balance recipe. It's a really basic recipe. It's easy for everyone in the house to do. Um, so they've been, and they thrive on it. They look really good on it. Um, so I've been doing that for a really a, a more extended period than usual with a little bit less variety than I usually would have just because I've been busy. So uh, when I then got all this venison and decided to, you know, make them a completely different diet, all of a sudden, everyone else is fine. Wallace like had the shit once. It wasn't terrible. It was just not great. And he's rebalanced in two days. Um, and it's my own fault because I know that actually he, if we're going to change foods with him, then I need to chuck in a digestive enzyme. And that's something that anyone can do. Um, a, a good gut support that contains a digestive enzyme, some good fibers, some good probiotics. If you've got, if you want to add more variety and you've got a dog that's sensitive to that, then the first place to start is by preparing the gut. So adding a digestive enzyme and a, and a good gut support. The one that I use is called Maxi Digest because all of that is in there. Um, so I don't have to feed different supplements. I think it's the only one I know of that's, I know there's a couple, there's a VO vet do, um, it's called Regutum. Um, that's a digestive powder and that's got digestive enzymes and probiotics in as well. So something with both of those things, digestive enzymes, probiotics, just helps prepare the gut to be a little bit more robust for any changes that might happen. Um, but as a general rule, yeah, the I feed some I feed a lot of variety of all different things. Um, I know a lot of other dogs that do as well. Um, dog dogs are my group. Uh, so there might be agility dogs that are fed raw when they're at home and then they go away to a competition and they might have dry or they might have tinned. Um, there's other people that Maybe because of, of budget, they'll they'll feed a kind of standard, uh, reasonable cost dry food most of the time. And when they're a little bit flush, they'll top that up with a bit of raw. They'll add a raw meaty bone. They might cook some broth. They might cook some meat and veggies. They might go to the supermarket, get loads of yellow sicker stuff and make a meatloaf. Um, there's lots of people on my group that that because of watching the way that I do things have been influenced to add more variety. And um, there are studies that being this way with your dog from a young age creates a more robust digestive system and reduces the incidence of allergies. Um, oh, that's very cool. It's very cool. Um, and we know this to be true from humans. You know, we don't, we don't procreate, have, not that I'm doing any procreating or having babies, but for the people that do, <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you when when you're eating them, you don't you don't stick them on baby rice forever, or yes. you don't put them on well, a jar forever. You, I wanted to you, I I wanted to get to this way earlier, and I just totally forgot about it, Holly. But obviously, ooh. most people we kind of went down so many rabbit holes. But like uh, no, no, most people, that people that listen Sorry. to this, <laughs> most people that listen to this are going to be dog trainers. I think right. more and more over the last however many years, you know, people are starting to hear about the gut brain connection and you know how much is does food affect behavior yeah. and it's like i think a lot of us are kind of aware that this is a thing but we mm. it's one of those things again was like well how do we action that like how do we you know if i have a dog that you know is fearful or um aggressive as a client um but and and also maybe they have some kind of gut issues or or they're sensitive or whatever 
I mean, if I suspect anything or if I think there's a... Re- like, you know, how can I actually do anything about this? Like, what what is actionable here? Okay. So when when we are talking about dog trainers and dog behaviorists and we are talking about improving behavior through diet, the first place we have to start is with evidence. Um, and the evidence that we have isn't great in terms of dog-specific we do have some evidence um, that we can apply from the human sphere um, because the, you know, the bacteria um, that we're talking about that applies to how uh, mental health hormones, if you want to call them that, are regulated, um, a lot of that goes between species. So we can't be too um, narrow-minded in just looking for dog studies. It's it's not going to work. You're not going to find a good evidence base for, for what you want to um, put into practice. So that's the first thing. If you're looking at the biome, you need to look at as much evidence as you can that is relevant to dogs, and that might not be dog-specific studies. So uh, the significant one from nutrition is probably short chain fatty acids butrate forming starches this is one of the the foundations of what i do um i have a few foundations and and that is um a, a diet that is uh, pro anti-inflammatory so balancing the omega 3 to 6s this affects the brain because omega 3s are important for balanced mental health so uh, the second thing is I protect the kidneys because in working dogs and stressed dogs, the thing that is going to kill them in the end will be kidney failure. And this is because of uh, the way that cortisol is um, metabolized uh, through the kidneys via sodium. And we know what sodium does to kidneys. So uh, anti-inflammatory, protect the kidneys, uh, support the biome. Um, and supporting the biome, I liken to uh, grow, like growing a garden. So what I tend to see with dogs that um, are uh, fearful and anxious is not that the diet that I create or give them or change makes a miraculous difference to them straight away. That's not what we're doing because it's like growing a garden. And the the bacteria that help balance hormonal health and uh, and you know the the happy hormones and all of that they have to grow in that garden. So the first thing we do when we're growing a garden is we prepare the soil. There's no point planting seeds on concrete. So we can do that by looking at the diet and making sure that it's got everything that is needed for that. So in a dog that's chronically stressed, they may have some digestive issues. Um, They may call them adrenaline poops. Basically, they start off in the morning before their day has gotten stressful and they do a good poo. And as the day goes on, it just gets worse and worse and worse. And by the nighttime, after all the stresses of the day, they're just pooing liquid. Um, So we can address that. So uh, I address the gut motility, that's speeding up. Of, of how the gut works. I address that with herbs. Um, and the best one for that is chamomile. So what that does is it regulates peristalsis. Peristalsis is the way that the gut moves. Um, and when stress is involved, it moves faster. So we address that. Chamomile is good for this because it works twofold. It relaxes smooth muscle 
So in that way, it regulates the peristalsis um, and it works on GABA, which is the brain chemicals responsible for calm, basically. Um, so chamomile is good for that. Uh, it is half a teaspoon per five kilograms once or twice a day. So we start with that. We address the brain. I can attest to this as well because you recommended this to me. <laughs> so, and, and I'm a so very... Basic. <laughs> I'm a very uh, skeptical person, I think, naturally. Mm. So I just, I, so, you know, coming from me, this, maybe that adds some credibility as well. And I do feel like it made a difference yeah. uh, with my dog. I don't feel, think she's like a hundred percent there. Like she doesn't have poos as great as our other dogs, but I do think it made a difference for sure. Yeah. Like I, I wouldn't stop doing it now. Yeah, and that's what a lot of people say. They're like, oh, I'm not sure if it works. I'm like, okay, then stop it and see what happens. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and, then, and then the evidence is there. Uh, so that addresses um, both sides of, of the coin, the, the gut and, and the brain. So, And it's dead easy. It's really safe. Um, it's palatable. Dogs don't mind it. So that's a good place to start in, in step one of bringing balance. Now, the second thing is that we, we need to prepare our soil. So that was a little bit what I was talking about before. Um, we need to add things that uh, are going to provide um, a good substrate. And by substrate, what we're talking about is the mucosa within the intestines. Chronic stress strips that away. So does parasites, um, infections like Giardia. If they've ever had antibiotics, if they've ever had uh, a significant um, gastroenteritis, you know, diarrhea and vomiting, anything like that, that affects the mucosal layer within the intestine. And that's where your biome lives. It lives within the mucus. It doesn't live on the tissue. It doesn't float about it's got a home and the home is the mucosa. And if that mucosa has been stripped away by any of those things that I just mentioned, then there's nothing for the biome to grow on. So that's one of the things that we need to replace. And we replace that with mucoliginous substances. I would just like to point out that's the first time I've ever said mucoliginous without getting it wrong. Um, and I would like a blue Peter badge and a curly willy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so when I'm talking about mucoliginous substances, this is one of the reasons why I really like oats. Oats uh, produce mucoliginous substances, as do flax, as do herbs such as marshmallow root, vegetables such as okra, although some of that is really expensive and it's hard to find, but, you know. I guess there. sometimes it might be worth referring them as well, though, right? Just, just Because we're never going to yeah. be an expert on this as much as a nutritionist and, yeah. but one of the challenges we come across holly is like oftentimes there's a little bit of a conflict as a dog trainer where you go and see one of these dogs and they're on like a you know you can maybe you're seeing more of the picture because you have the the behavior side of things as well and the yeah. dog's on a prescription diet and you don't want to mm -hmm. like argue about that but yeah. because you know it's the advice from the vet um, but also maybe it just, it feels, sometimes it feels a little bit like, uh, you know, like a band-aid solution. That's what the Americans would call it, right? Like, you know, it's yeah. just like, it's not really, you know, it, it doesn't it's feel like it's really addressing the, the problem. It's putting a sticker over the warning light, isn't it? Yeah. Like if, if there's something goes wrong with your car engine and you get a red warning light, you can put a sticker over that light and then there's no warning light there anymore. You've not fixed the problem. You've, you just can't see it anymore. Um, and that's what some of these diets can do. Um, a, 
a really good example of that of that is you can just you know any diet that's causing any problem you can just stick a load of medicinal clay in that and you'll get perfect poos overnight medicinal clay has it fixed the problem no it's just turned your dog's intestines into a cement mixer because you're adding mineral compounds that expand with water and then set the same as concrete um, in, a, in a, a wet environment like the intestine. So, yeah, all of these things. I would say um, for the dogs like this, this is what my group is for. Yeah. So it's called Holly Barker Sport Dog Nutrition. And what I want it to be is a place so that when you get when you have that conversation, you think, oh, this dog needs to be off this diet, but it, the vet says it has to have it. And I don't feel like it's my remit to say that diet's shit and prescription diets are nonsense. And you can do way better, achieve the same for less money and better ingredients or whatever it might be. But you feel like that's not your your remit, then you just send them to me. And I would say that that is a huge basis of a lot of the people that I have and my group have come from dog trainers where they're like, I can't say this, but Holly can. Um, and the way that I get around that, because I can't refute veterinary advice either. However, the vet has said that they need a prescription diet. The vet hasn't said that it has to be Hill's ID. The vet hasn't said that it has to be whatever. And there are other ones out there that are really much better quality but tick the box. So I'm not saying don't don't feed that diet. I'm saying, oh, the vet said that you need a low fat gastrointestinal diet. And here's one that's really good quality. So mainly I get those out of Germany, to be honest. German dog food, way above and beyond what we're doing here. Definitely oh, better than anything from the US. Um, none of this hill stuff. So there's a there's a few that I use um, for uh, hypoallergenic diets. Uh, the sensitive ones, anything like that. Um, I use, uh, it's called Rocco Diet Care. It's out of Germany. You can get it on Zoo Plus. It's a really, it's a really good food, high meat content, um, medicinal things in there, really good. Um, in terms of the hydrolyzed diets, ask on the group. That's definitely a thing. Getting dogs off of hydrolyzed diet takes, uh, takes some effort. But I've got protocols on there and I can talk people through that. That's no problem. Um, I would say do that. How much do you think that nutrition affects behavior? You know, when we see a, a dog that maybe is on a prescription diet, they've had dietary issues for a long, long time. And we're seeing those kind of behavior problems, like we're seeing fear or aggression. Do you think that, I mean, I guess it's a case by case, isn't it? But uh do you, do you think this can be a, a big contributor? I think it can be a big contributor. Do you know what? I had a really interesting conversation about this, actually, the other day. Um, and it was about serotonin diets. Um, and serotonin diets wax and wane in popularity. And I get asked about them here and there. Um, and what they are is diets that basically manipulate your dog's biology so that... Um, you're feeding little and often, which gives the opportunity for uh, L-tryptophan to be uptaken. And because it's L-tryptophan is a serotonin precursor, um, it increases the serotonin. I think that these diets work because it improves the relationship between the dog and the owner. 
There's the placebo effect. The owner believes that this is going to work because it sounds like science and they're having to put effort in to do it, but it's something that they can easily achieve. All the journey is putting food into a bowl. So instantly the, the, the owner feels like they are actively doing something to improve their dog. And if they're doing that with a positive attitude, if they believe it's going to help, then it's more likely that it will. The dog is getting fed more often. It has more things in the day to look forward to. We've seen the recent studies about dogs and hope and how hope changes behavior. And food was a massive thing for that. Um, I don't know if anyone's seen the, the little meme that goes around Facebook, but it's a picture of a Labrador with its head stuck in a bush. And it says, um, Barney found half a pie in this bush three years ago. So now on every walk, we have to check the magical pie bush. That's yeah, hope a lot for of that dog. That story. Yeah, I love that story because, yeah, when nice things happen, we want them to keep happening. And for dogs, we can see that. I remember one of our dogs found like a little kid's toy. I think it was like a tiny little frog toy on a walk. And he never shows any interest in toys usually. And he was just obsessed with it. And he carried it home and it was the cutest thing. And this is so, this is so silly. But uh, I decided that I really, I liked how happy it made him. So I tried to replicate it. <laughs> I, I, try, I tried to like sneakily drop a toy that he hadn't seen before he didn't give a shit <laughs> he just ignored it so there was something about that toy i guess that really appealed to him but uh, because of the novelty and the surprise like oh, look what i found special yeah um and that's what i think that quite often some of these dietary changes especially when it comes to um, you know, the dogs that, that might get cooked for, the the dogs where the, the human's really involved in preparing the diet because they believe it's therapeutic. I think that there is a bit of a placebo effect, but I also think that there is an effect in terms of the relationship with the dog. The thing about fear, um, and if we bear in mind that the way that I work when I'm not doing nutrition is trauma informed. So um, how fears are manifested, the parts of the brain that they come from and the behaviours that they elicit when they're triggered is something that I do a lot of work with. And more and more what the therapeutic process comes back to is um, when we're being really airy-fairy, we basically just call it love being loved, being loved effectively, being made to feel safe, having needs met. There's nothing more basic in terms of having needs met for a dog than being nourished. Food is so important to them. You know, when we talk about, um, you know, Maslow and the hierarchy of needs, food, shelter, feeling safe, all really basic things. So we need to look at how the most basic needs are being met in order to um, influence some very basic emotional processes. Um, and this is something that I do when, I mean, I've got to say, I haven't rehabbed a dog for four years. Wallace was my last rehab and he's taken so long and he's been so complex that I haven't had any new ones. But that's how I start with these dogs. And I can show you a before and after of fling. You know, when they, when they come here, they're not great. They're not they're not in good order. Diet is one of the th first things that I address. 
and they are fearful. And I do things to help with that. And a lot of it is herbs. Um, so I spoke to you about the chamomile. There's a whole array of herbs that, that I can use that help with various functions um, in the brain and the body. Um, and we sort out the, the bacteria as well. So I'll feed, you know, probiotics. We add enzymes. We add the mucilaginous things. But I think the thing that reassures those dogs most is that they see me doing all of this. They are intelligent. They know that what I'm doing is specifically for them and that I'm doing it in a way that lets them know that they are being nurtured and cared for and looked after by someone who prioritizes their needs. We haven't coexisted alongside dogs for them to be done. They know when we're doing things in their interest. Um, I think that that is one of the big things about diet in terms of behavior it's not just what you're doing and what you're feeding it's how you do it and the mindset that you have when you're doing it and i know how airy fairy that sounds no it's okay i, I think sometimes been. yeah no I, I get that entirely is there anything that actually increases sensing ability because a lot of people were into scent work tracking all of this kind of stuff is there anything that people can do that actually does the opposite lemon balm um, lemon balm is a herb that the way that it acts on the brain um, can open up neural pathways. The thing about scent is the way that so um, most of the senses um, go through a part of the brain called the amygdala. Um, and, and scent, whilst it does do that, can also bypass it. So the way that scent works in terms of uh, the brain and memory um is uh that it, it's kind of got its own its own part of the brain that it works alongside um and there's no dog study for it but there are human studies for it in particular um in dementia for how lemon balm um increases uh neural activity so what you can do with a scent dog is if you're um if you're making the dog's brain as healthy um, and snappy as possible, then you're going to increase their sentient ability because it is such a neurological process. Sounds like this would be actually be good for any dog that does any training, like a lot of training. Yeah, yeah, learning basically. So what you're doing with a scent dog is is you it, it's just learning. It's just learning in terms of scent. Find this how scent. Does it, find that scent. How does it work? Obviously, you, told, you mentioned the half a teaspoon per five kilograms of weight when it comes to chamomile. How does it work with lemon balm? Same for lemon balm. Same. So oh, to really? make life easy for everyone, if I ever mention a herb, I only work with... <laughs> just, this is my specialness, if you want to call it that. I only use herbs where it's the same dose for everything um, because it makes life easier for everyone. Um, okay. And the herbs that I use are truly multifunctional and really i know i come across the quite it's sometimes a bit airy fairy a bit hippie but when it comes to the herbs i only use ones that work and i use ones that work for loads of different things so that we're not getting confused um with ten thousand different sprinkles and you can stack these up herbs. like you don't and you can doesn't... stack them up yeah okay they don't interact with what each do you other. think so... about valerian for calming because i've got to be honest I've, a lot of people bring it up and i've i've never seen it work very well. I, have, I have opinions on valerian and skullcap as well so 
my opinions on these two drugs are, <laughs> sorry, two herbs are, um, they work for uh, sleep. So if you if you have if you have a dog that is fearful and anxious, kind of as a permanent, their cortisol is going to be quite high, and that inhibits a decent sleep. Also, traumatized animals don't sleep properly. Um, they don't have proper REM sleep cycles. Their brain doesn't shut down properly. They literally, people as well, people in trauma, they they literally kind of sleep with half their brain still awake because they're anticipating that something is going to happen that they're going to need to respond to. So if you give valerian and skullcap to a dog that might be in that state, and if you give it as part of a twice a day regime, I think that the, the one that you give in the morning is doing cock up. The one that you're doing at night is helping them get a better sleep. So in the dogs where this is a, an issue, it can help by giving them a better quality of sleep. And when you get a better because, quality of sleep... Right. A lot of people are using the sprays and stuff. Do you think... Yeah. So, um, yeah. So the way that I use the spray is part of conditioning. Um, uh, so the pet remedy sprays quite like them but conditioned and i do condition my dogs to pet remedy spray and th because when you condition them it works so the way you do that is from small or whenever you get them comes to bedtime relax time all the rest of it have a bedtime routine bedtime biscuit little spritz of pet remedy spray night night love you off you go to sleep nice it's a routine they associate the smell with sleep with being relaxed with being calm with being safe with having a biscuit needs met which means that if you've conditioned them that that smell means safety, if you use that in future where you want them to feel safe, then it'll work because of how the brain works in relation to scent. So it's not actually the, the spray, it's the training around the spray. Sometimes, sometimes. It's a really, it's a really kind of one of those ones where if it works, it works. Some dogs respond really well to it and some don't. And I think that comes down to their individual biochemistry. Um, I did read a thing once about valerian in terms of the scent. And that is because have you smelt valerian? It smells like sweaty feet. It's grim. No, I've never um, noticed that. It, it's not a good smell. Okay. However, if you need it, if you're if you know, if if you um are gonna work well with that scent, apparently. It doesn't smell bad. So if it smells bad, you don't need it. And if it smells good, you do. I don't know that there's any science around that. It's just an anecdotal thing that I heard. But what I was going to say was about Valerian and Skullcap. If you're giving it to a dog that's fearful, here's the problem with that. It says online that it's not sedating. Um, it is because it works on <clears throat> the GABA receptors. And for some reason, there is this belief that because it works on GABA receptors, it's not sedating. And if I could give an example of a drug that works on those receptors, it's diazepam. Have you ever had diazepam? Knocks you the fuck out. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it's not sedating. Yes, it is. That's the point. The point of increasing the uptake <clears throat> at the GABA is, is for that. It's for sedating. Um, if you fight it, if you fight that feeling, you might have a nice time of feeling very, very, very relaxed and relaxed muscles and all the rest of it, but dogs don't have that ability. So if you give a frightened dog something that is sedating and that dog feels the effects of that, they're going to fight harder because the last thing you want to feel when you're frightened is slow, is sluggish, 
is inhibited in any way. Imagine being imagine being scared and and someone's dropped a diazepam into your drink. I know it's not as strong as that, but for for the sake of argument, if you feel unsafe and then you get this creeping feeling that you're being slowed down, the adrenaline's going to kick in. You 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 were going to feel compromised. You're going to feel like you're going to have to fight harder to feel safe. Um, and yeah. that's what I find with valerian and school cap. And that is why I don't use them other than to aid sleep. Sometimes for travel sickness, they can be kind of handy, but that's just because valerian helps with the, with, with sickness as well. Um, and school cap, sometimes that works because in certain quantities, school cap can um, be a little bit of a pain reliever, actually. So sometimes there might be a pain thing going on. But in terms of general anxiety and fear, they aren't the ones I use. The ones I use are chamomile, passion flower, um, lemon balm. Uh, that's probably it just for just sort of general chat. I feel like this podcast is going to, for a lot of people, they're going to be left just with even more questions. You know, it's one of those podcasts. Sorry. Um, no, it's what good. Think, it's just you. What do you think people might ask? <laughs> Yeah, but I think a lot of people are going to have the questions about their own dogs. It's one of those where uh, it's it's a good thing to end a podcast and just, you know, I mean, it just gets you thinking so much that you're just like, then you have, you know, you started with one question, now you have 10, you know. Um, where can people find out more about you and kind of get answers to the inevitable questions? <laughs> Millions of questions. Literally on my Facebook group. So it's called Holly Barker Sport Dog Nutrition. If you go on there and you can't find it, it's just because sometimes I turn it off. <laughs> it's not very helpful, is it? Um, <laughs> but if, if you if you can't find it, just just wait a week or so and it'll, it'll come back on. Um, but it doesn't disappear completely when I turn it off. It'll just... Um, It'll just say that it's it's archived. It's only ever temporary. It's on at the minute. So, um, yeah, that's the best place to find me. I know it's not very helpful for a lot of people, um, but I need to just be based in one place, and that's where you can find me. You can post a question. You can ask a question. Um, you can so, – honestly, my Facebook group is like a library of conversations it's a bit like Google. So there's the search box. Just put in a search term, anxiety, and it will bring up years worth of conversations about anxiety, the things we do dietary for that, the things we do herbal for that, picking things apart. You know, I have spent, I do try and spend as much time as I can picking things apart for people. You know, there'll, there'll be some things that someone might think is anxiety and it's just a breed trait or whatever it might be. So I don't, do a blanket treatment of you know someone says this and and i give x as, as a solution we do pick things apart a little bit so join the group have a search ask questions i'm about if i'm about i'll answer questions if i'm not um i won't <laughs> but usually i'll, I'll yeah, respond to people you're not paying for it so <laughs> <laughs> oh, i will fix that one day um <laughs> yeah, you should get back to people within within a day or so. The only thing, um, I, I'll the only questions that I'm not posting at the minute are ones about joint care. It's been done to death. I've got a pinned post about it. There's literally not a single question about joint care on a sporting dog page that has never been asked before. So just search that. There's a pinned post on what I recommend for joint care. There's no point asking a question because I'm just just not posting them anymore. It's it's been done to death. Um, but everything else, yeah, do 
do search. There's so much information on there. Um, loads. Loads of info. Yeah. I feel like, do you know what it is, Nick? I feel like um, I have not given you a single straight answer to a single question that you've asked. <laughs> <laughs> question and i've gone round and round and round and round and round and forgotten what we were talking about and moved on <laughs> no no it's fine it's fine no you've said a lot of fascinating things i feel like i've played the role of almost like a dog owner because this is probably what it feels like for a dog owner when i'm talking about dog training you know in terms of they just want to be told do x and instead it's like you know, then we start talking about GABA receptors. and <laughs> A little bit. Do you, know, do you know what it is, though? It's because I feel like I want to give people information so that they can make an informed decision. No, it's good. It's good. You're teaching us so much. I appreciate it. That's right. But, yeah, I do, I do get the feeling more and more lately that, that people would just like me to decide for them. <laughs> <laughs> Sure, no, what I know what you mean. I think what should I feed my dog? And my answer is, well, it's up to you. Every dog's different, la da 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 Just like, can you not just tell me? <laughs> Maybe I should do more of that. Well, if anyone wants to to know what to feed their dog, then I guess that's oh, the best God. place to post it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on, though, Holly. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, I hope you enjoyed another episode. If you're feeling motivated to come and do something with your dog, we are running an in-person event here in Bristol, England, which is an introduction to bike drawing with Cat Le Chevalier. It's going to be on October the 7th. You can bring your dog, uh, introduce them to the bike, the equipment. We really want you to go away feeling motivated and capable of starting your own bike drawing uh, journey, both for your dog's fitness and also obviously just to break up the monotony monotony of uh just dog walking every day right i think it's a really good to, thing to be able to work into your routine so if you're interested in coming and joining us then you can find us or you can find the event details at houndplus.com that's h-o-u-n-d-p-l-u-s.com click on the events tab and you'll be able to find all the details and get yourself signed up see you in the next episode